Data Skeptic features interviews with experts on topics related to data science, all through the eye of scientific skepticism. Linda, you're familiar with the website Faircast, right? The flight checker? Yeah, yeah. Tell me about it, just in case any of the listeners don't know about it. You plug in what dates you might travel, Uh and then they give estimates about the cost, Mm -hmm. and you could buy it through Faircast. But for me, I like it the best because it predicts whether the plane fares are going up or down. They have certain averages and some data that helps you decide if you should wait or not. Mm, And why do you use it? Because I want to get the best plane ticket for the best price. I see. So this is something that in the business we know as prediction as a service. So they built uh, some fancy algorithm, one would presume, that makes these predictions and you're able to utilize it on sort of a a one-off basis, right? They didn't Mm -hmm. send you a CD to install some software or something, did they? No, it's a website. Okay. So what if you wanted to get a fair cast for every single flight? You're going to start a business as a travel agent or something like that? I don't know if they have an open API like that. All right, well, let's just talk about um, how it works, maybe. Why do you trust it? I didn't look at their data, but it seems like it's based on data. Uh And they're like, this is expensive, or it's predicted to go up. And whatever data they're looking at, they're at least basing it on some kind of past behavior and predicting the future. So I use it because I just need to know whether I should buy the ticket now or wait. Well, what if you want to have a copy of that algorithm, either to understand how it works or maybe to use it offline or start a competitive business? Or maybe you could steal their algorithm. I don't know. Do you Can you, you? Well, do you think you could reverse engineer it just by playing with it enough, asking it enough questions and seeing how it responds? I mean, probably, but it would take a long time. Well, you'd be surprised. It might take a long time and it might not. That's part of what we're going to get into in today's interview. Florian Tremere is a PhD student of computer science at Stanford University. His master's thesis was titled Algorithmic Fairness Revisited, and his other research has also explored areas such as cryptography, data privacy, and reverse engineering machine learning models. In his recent paper, Stealing Machine Learning Models via Prediction APIs. We'll discuss that work on the show today. Florian, welcome to Data Skeptic. Thanks. Hi. I think to start with, before we get into how one goes about stealing a machine learning model, maybe we should take a moment and talk about predictive APIs. What has been this trend of getting machine learning as a service, uh, and how do people interact with that? Machine learning has become a very popular tool that people want to apply to many different areas. A problem today is that unless you have a lot of expertise in data science or machine learning and a lot of time on your hands to actually implement the algorithms that you'd want to use to um, extract something from your data, this is going to be quite a difficult task. It's going to take a lot of time. It's also one of the reasons why data scientists are uh, is a very popular job right now. And so what some companies like Amazon or Google are prime examples have tried to do is to provide service where you will just upload your data to some cloud and they will essentially take care of the heavy machine learning machinery for you. So you don't have to worry about having a big enough computer for this. They'll do everything on the cloud for you and you don't have to care too much about tuning algorithmic parameters because they will do everything for you. Then after that, you can use the model that they trained for you to answer predictions that uh, you might be interested in. That's interesting. So yeah, maybe if I have a nice clean data set and I upload it, 
some service can provide the training for me and come up with a model. How do I, or maybe how do my customers, if I want to turn this into a business, how do they interact with that outputted model? One particular way you could think of this is, for instance, that you might want to set up a predictive model that's going to be used in a, in a smartphone app. You don't necessarily want to ship the model onto every app because the model might be quite heavy, let's say, in terms of how much space it would take on your smartphone. So you could consider that you would just train such a model on the cloud and then put up some app that all your clients would then use to make remote queries over, over the network to the cloud service that hosts your model and then provide these predictions so that the app can then figure out what it should do. I'm aware that there's a lot of these services and a growing, maybe even exponentially growing number of these every day. If I created such a service, I another reason I might want it in the cloud is that there's a little bit of privacy. People can use it, but they don't necessarily know, or at least I hope they don't know, my training data or the type of model I've built. But your work explores how someone could kind of reverse engineer that, or is that a fair characterization of your work? Right. So this was the starting point of our work, was this realization that in a, in a lot of settings where people apply machine learning, there seems to be a sort of an inherent assumption that the model or at least the data that was used is private and confidential and that it should remain this way. And so if you look at a lot of these services, these online services, what they provide is really a black box where you upload your data, it provides a model. And then the only way you can interact with this model is just by sending it inputs and receiving the corresponding outputs. And there's a number of situations where you might think of someone building models based on data that is of value. That's why they'd want to build a model over it in the first place and, and where you won't, wouldn't necessarily want everyone to get access to the model or especially not to the data that it was trained on. So what exactly is a machine learning model extraction attack? What we considered in our work is, in a sense, a very simple class of attacks, at least in the way that they're supposed to work, is to say, well, we have this online service that hosts a model that we cannot access directly. It's a, it's a black box, but we can send inputs to it and retrieve the corresponding outputs. Of course, if you could send unbounded infinite number of questions to this black box and receive the corresponding outputs, you'd kind of trivially be able to extract it by just knowing exactly which answer it gives for each possible input. But what we were really interested in, in figuring out is how easy such an attack might be. So is there a way to extract, to learn the sort of same model as the one that's sitting on the cloud, but in a very cheap and fast uh, way? So by minimizing the number of times you actually have to interact with the online service. I know in your paper, you guys do work on you know, open data sets, and it's nothing nefarious about it. But of course, in the real world, there are ill-intentioned people, maybe even criminals, who are trying to get access to something that perhaps doesn't belong to them or who knows what. But they also probably don't know what's inside that black box. If I wanted to reverse engineer some private machine learning model in the cloud, do I need to know the algorithm they're using? For the best type of attacks, if you want your attack to be, let's say, most powerful, it's better if you have some background information on what the model is. We actually distinguish between two types of extraction in that sense, one that we call proper extraction, where your goal is actually to learn the same type of algorithm that was used on the cloud in the first place. 
Uh, in contrast to what we call improper extraction, where you don't necessarily know which type of algorithm or technique was used in the first place, and yet you just want to find a way to reproduce the input-output behavior of that model. And that's also something you can do, although that's not specifically what we looked at. Why we actually considered these proper extractions in the first place is simply because these API services that we looked into often tend to actually just tell you what kind of model they train. So this is the case, for instance, for Amazon or for BigML, which is another platform we looked at, but wouldn't necessarily be true, for instance, for Google's machine learning service. So you had mentioned earlier the important distinction that if we brute force attacked every possible input, of course we could have the model, but your work explores how to be much more efficient about this. Are there different techniques you use, just maybe randomly exploring it or looking in clever ways at what uh, good requests to give? So we really consider two different settings in our paper. The first is actually one that's, in hindsight, you could even call it trivially simple, and yet it still works. So that's still something interesting about it. What we found is that a lot of these machine learning services, when you give them an input to classify, they're not just going to tell you what the class is. So if you give them, for instance, an image, they're not going to just tell you this is an image of a dog versus this is an image of a cat. They're actually going to give you an exact probabilistic output that these machine learning models tend to compute, which is to say they're going to tell you this is a cat with 38% probability and a dog with 62% probability, something like that. And the fact that you actually get these exact outputs computed by the model makes it extremely easy to just recover the exact parameters of the model you're dealing with by basically solving a huge number of of equations, which is fairly easy to do by using the same type of algorithms that people would use to train machine learning models in the first place. And so if you have machine learning service that actually gives you these really fine-grained answers, well, you typically just have to query uh, a small number of points at random just so that you get enough data points to write a big enough equation system and just recover all of the parameters of your model. An easy way to get rid of this problem is to just say, well, let's have a service that is not going to give you any fine-grained answers anymore. That's just going to tell you the class, so this image is a dog, and that's it. This, of course, reduces the usability of your system because you might actually be interested in these confidence values in your application, but let's say you can get away with not having them. Then what we looked into are a number of techniques to sort of explore the input space in an efficient way. So intuitively what we do is that we'd start by querying a number of points at random and seeing what the model in the cloud gives as classes for these. But the intuition is that you'd pick points that are classified differently and then explore the region between these points, because you know that the model somewhere between these two points that are classified as something different, somewhere the model reaches a decision that goes one way or the other. And by sort of trying to find points that are closer and closer to what is called the decision boundary of the model, you actually can learn in which spaces in in your input space, the model actually reaches its decisions. And that's kind of what you'd want to be able to mimic locally. 
we sort of iteratively would ask the online service to give us labels for points that we choose at different points in the input space until we get a reasonable confidence about where the decisions actually happen. I see. So if we hypothesized maybe a, a fraud risk model that returned labels of you know mm-hmm. creditworthy and not creditworthy, and we had uh, one example with a very low FICO score that was rejected and one with a very high FICO score that's accepted, we know somewhere in the middle there's a single value decision point and you're searching for that. Is that right? Right. So the way you then have to think about these models is that they tend to operate in a very high dimensional space. So the, the inputs that you're going to feed this model is maybe uses uh, maybe tens or hundreds of different features and attributes. And so you're essentially working in this very high dimensional space and trying to find points that sort of lie on the decision boundary for this model. And if you know, if you find enough of such points, you can get a very good confidence and very good approximation for how the model actually splits the two classes apart. I suppose every function is of a different complexity. Some could be you know, very simple and have maybe two parameters and very central decision boundaries, and others could be quite intricate and complicated. Is there a way you can frame the number of requests you would need to get a good approximation of the model you're trying to learn? If we look at our, our first class of attacks, uh, where we actually assume that machine learning services would give you access to confidence scores, there the attacks are, are extremely simple in the sense that we tend to need about one query to the service for each unknown parameter of the model that we're trying to recover. For the type of models that people would use in practice, this could be something of the order of a few hundreds to a few thousands, tens of thousands, up to a few millions uh, for state-of-the-art, let's say, image classification tasks. We didn't experiment with the biggest types of models, which just showed that it worked uh, extremely well for the sort of simple models that machine learning services tend to use nowadays. And then if you only assume access to class labels. So when you have to do this kind of iterative search over the input space, the procedure is less efficient. So we needed more in the few thousands to tens of thousands of queries to a model. Overall, the difference between the two settings was maybe about a factor of a 50 or to a 100 to get comparable accuracy. So if I were hosting a machine learning model and I was concerned about security, I could watch the number of requests each of my users send. If you want to do this undetected, you'd have to just stay under my threshold of what's suspicious. You know, a million calls a second is certainly suspicious. Something on the order of, I don't know, a a 10,000 an hour might not even get noticed. Of the different data sets you worked with, how many required uh, a long period of time or a you know, relatively large number of requests to reverse engineer them with you know, decent accuracy? What's interesting in this setting is that the number of queries that you have to make doesn't really depend on the, on the size of your data set, maybe on the size of the, the number of features you have for one data point, but whether you've trained your model with tens of thousands of points or with millions of points actually doesn't matter since the complexity of the model itself doesn't necessarily change. For the the type of models that we experimented with that uh, had maybe up to a few tens of thousands of parameters, as uh, as I said, you would need maybe a few tens of thousands, sometimes maybe up to a hundred thousand queries to the model, which you're right, could be detected if 
a such a large number of queries is actually unusual unusual for a honest user of the system. So that really would depend on the application you have in mind. So how do you go about measuring the model you have against the unknown true model as it converges and you do more and more observations? Or in other words, maybe a, how do you measure the error and decide when you can halt? It's actually relatively easy again when the when the model gives you back confidence scores because you can just do a number of queries to the online uh, service and then compare them to the outputs you would have gotten on your local model and since you get confidence scores you actually can see very precisely whether the two models are starting to converge to a very similar output if you only get class labels again well you'd probably need a bit more queries to get a good confidence on how close your two models actually are again this would be application specific of actually first figuring out how close a copy of the target model you're actually interested in in our work we really looked at accuracy as close as possible to 100%, so really extracting two models that for all practical purposes look equivalent. We know of some um, colleagues in a different university who did similar extraction attacks with a specific goal of model ev evasion in mind, which means that once you've re reconstructed a local model, what you'd be interested in is finding, for instance, a message that is a piece of spam, but that the model somehow does not classify as spam, and then use that to mm -hmm. evade the online spam detector. To do these type of attacks, it sort of suffices if you've managed to extract a model that is close to the target at the sort of reasonable level of accuracy of maybe 85, 90%. So for certain applications, you might even be content with a sort of crude approximation of the model, although as we show in, in our work, you can even get close to 100% accuracy in a lot of settings. We've talked a lot about how the confidence score gives you some extra information. I know you also explored how exploiting the feature that some models don't require all the values. You can pass a, an incomplete vector or a missing value, um, and when that's available, it can improve your success. Why is that? That was mostly the case when we started looking at machine learning services that would also apply what's called feature extraction. And so there of an additional step in the process where you're going to send inputs to the service, but they'll first do some pre-processing on those inputs, maybe combine them somehow or just discard some of them as being irrelevant or different types of techniques. For an attacker who wants to extract the model, this puts you at a disadvantage because you actually don't know in the first place which features might actually be used in your model. And so what we showed there is that using quite similar techniques to the ones we use for extraction, you can also figure out relatively easily which features are used by the model and in what way. One thing that really helps there, as you mentioned, is the fact that some of these services let you leave some of the features blank. Essentially, lets you do some kind of differential testing where you'd send one input, then remove one of the features and see if the output changes. If the output changes, well, you know that the feature is used by the model or otherwise it shouldn't have changed in the first place. And by doing this a number of times, you can actually get a very good idea of which features are actually being used and how the machine learning API pre-processes them. 
Yeah, I wanted to ask you a bit about pre-processing. When I first started reading your paper, it was obvious to me how logistic regression was especially susceptible to this because we assume every feature is independent. And so it's the equation solving attack seems very effective there, both computationally and in terms of sample size. But when I've deployed logistic regression, I've often in my feature extraction stage realized that there was some correlation and I would create grouped variables, you know, the combination of columns A and C or something along those lines that I've transformed my data set in a non-obvious, non-trivial way. How do the approaches you're looking at work under those situations? This uh, grouping of features is not a pre-processing step that we looked at specifically, although we think that the type of techniques we use would work in, in that setting as well, in the sense that, again, you could rather easily by testing, say, pairs or triplets of features in a setting where you can omit a number of other features, sort of figure out which groups of features are actually being used by the model or and which are not. It seems like this type of feature pre-processing adds some complexity to the attack, but shouldn't render it impossible. And what about tree-based methods? We looked at decision trees as well, which have this particularity of not being differentiable. So the way that you'd train them is very different from the way other types of machine learning models like regressions or neural networks would be trained. And so there we really specifically rely on the fact that the API would give us confidence scores. Actually, if the tree would only give you a label as output, we know that there are, theoretically at least, there are ways that you can extract decision trees, but the algorithms that do this are way too complex to actually be implemented and used in practice. And so our main idea there was, again, this kind of differential testing step where given an input that is assigned a certain class probability distribution, you can simply try to tweak all the features in your input space and then just see whether you land, uh, you receive a different output, which sort of tells you that you've landed in a different leaf of the tree that you're trying to extract. And by sort of recursively and iteratively changing all the features in the right way, you can actually quite easily figure out the decisions that the tree has taken to actually classify the input that you've started with. By repeating this process, you can then recover all the paths, let's say, that exist in the underlying tree and figure out exactly which decision it actually uses to classify inputs. Although I had not thought of this idea myself, of course, when I started reading your paper, I quickly was on board with this idea of maybe doing some adaptive learning and in a very clever way reverse engineering the model itself. But I had no idea that you might be able to even see leakage of the training data into the model. I was wondering if you could share the process there and especially the case of what was recovered from the AT&T FACES dataset. This part of the work was following up on work that had been done by a previous group of authors, of which Tom Rissenpart, who actually collaborated on this paper, also collaborated on this former work, where they showed that essentially the problem you have with machine learning from a privacy perspective is that the model will always, unless you completely get rid of overfitting, let's say, it will always learn some features that are specific to the training data you gave it. 
In this case, when you look at a classifier trained over the AT&T faces data set, it's actually sort of inherent in the sense that you're trying to train a model to recognize 40 different faces. And so inherently, the model must have an internal, let's say, representation of what these faces look like. What this prior research had shown is that if you get access to this model in a white box setting, so if you know all the parameters that make up the model, it's very, very easy to recover an image that looks a lot like the images that were used in the training set just by sort of reversing the model. So essentially through optimization, trying to find the input for which your model gives the most confident answer for any particular class. You take the AT&T faces data set as an example, what these people show, what you can do is take the model and through optimization, figure out which input has the most confidence for the label Bob. And then you'd find a face that actually looks very, very much alike the faces of Bob that were used during training. And so what we did in our work was trying to figure out how you would do this type of reverse engineering attack of training data in a setting where you you don't actually have access to the model parameters. So the model is some black box uh, somewhere potentially stored on the cloud. What would happen if you first try to extract this model using the techniques we've presented in our paper and then just ran again this white box attack on the local model that you've reconstructed? And we found that although the attack is rather expensive in terms of number of queries you have to make or the time it takes to actually recover the model, well, once you've recovered the model locally, you can just reconstruct faces for all the individuals that were part of the training data. So 40 people in this case. And this is a rather powerful attack then. Yeah, it's very shocking that that can be done. When I look at your general approach, of course, it's, it's in some sense, it's reverse engineering, but one could also position it as being no different from the same type of learning problem. In classic machine learning, you have a data set and you want to learn the function that maps to some output. You know the, you're able to observe the output and you want to learn the function that did that mapping. Are these right. mathematically equivalent or is your process more computationally intensive? So they are mathematically equivalent. There's two main differences, though, that are very relevant to this. The first one that is the main difference is that usually when you do machine learning, normal machine learning, let's say, the function that you're trying to learn doesn't necessarily exist per se, but you, you try to find the best type of function, let's say, that lets you classify digits or faces. But the, the data that you're dealing with is inherently noisy a lot of the complexity in the learning actually comes from sort of getting rid of this noise to really learn the underlying classification that you're interested in. When you do extraction, your target is actually a very well-defined mathematical model that was trained on some noisy data in the first place. But what that means is that this function that you're now trying to learn really has well-defined decision boundaries uh, you're never going to get two points at the same place that are classified differently. And so it sort of inherently means that you're trying to learn a function in a way that is much easier than the machine learning was in the first place. The other main difference is in this setting where the 
machine learning model you're trying to extract actually gives you class probabilities, which is also something that you usually don't encounter when you do machine learning just in a traditional way. You only have access to hard labels. Recovering a model given access to these exact probability outputs turns out to be much, much easier, which makes sense also from a mathematical perspective. So if I uh, were someone who is going to put up an API of some kind and I wanted to keep it private for whatever reason, that is to keep it a black box, I don't want people reverse engineering, what options do I have? Is there any way I can um, prevent this either passively or maybe actively? We considered a few countermeasures in our paper. I mean, as, as you mentioned, there, there is a, in some sense a kind of inherent threat in the sense that what we are doing is really just learning the model through its input-output behavior. But the fact that this is so simple in practice can be mitigated through either not providing confidence values, if you can get away with it in your application, also, obviously, if the more complex your models are, the more deep, let's say, your neural networks are that you use, or if you use some complex ensembles of models, it's also going to make it a much harder process to extract. It's not clear to us whether there is a simple strategy that one might use to either detect extraction attacks. It seems like it's inherently impossible to prevent them entirely. Yeah, I think it's important that people are aware of this threat because it might just also make a difference in the way that you deal with private data or private models. It seems like just having a model sit somewhere on a cloud where everyone can query it is not necessarily a good idea. Uh, one thing we actually haven't uh, mentioned uh, so far, which we were quite intrigued in finding in a number of these online services, is that they propose to users this possibility that you might try to monetize your model or your, mm -hmm. your data by essentially having clients pay for each prediction that they will make to your online model. And in, in that setting, of course, extraction is also a quite a concerning attack because if the cost of running the extraction attack is actually cheaper than the cost you would have to pay for all the queries that you want to do for the model anyways, then you might as well just pay for a number of queries, run an extraction attack, and then just use your local model for free. And so this whole monetization of machine learning models is also something that we're quite interested in seeing how this will play out, because it seems like so far, even though some companies and startups have started proposing it, it doesn't seem like something that has really started being used. But we're quite interested in seeing whether this will actually become a viable business model. Yeah, yeah. I've been quietly watching this myself. I'm very excited about it, but my take is it hasn't really taken off yet. Mm -hmm. But in theory, it's a nice idea that someone who's very specialized at one particular thing, you know, maybe a lead scoring, they right. could provide the service. And then if I'm an entrepreneur, I don't need to reinvent the wheel. I can just consume their service and dispose of it quickly if I don't like it. So it seems like a nice marketplace, even though not a lot of money has yet, at least to my knowledge, gone into it. Mm -hmm. um, maybe for threat of reverse engineering or something like that. But I'm curious to get your take on one argument I might make. If I were an entrepreneur in that space, I might say, yes, of course, for this amount of money, following the excellent techniques Florian laid out, you could steal my model at this cost. 
but that doesn't account for the fact that I'm continuously improving my model and that's the cost of the service. Do you think that's a, a obviously it may or may not be true, but would that be a reasonable argument for many people against trying to steal the model? Right. So if the model really is improved over time, that would mean that to sort of get the best model at any time, you would have to extract it again and again. Although this isn't something we've we've looked into, it would be a very interesting question to consider is whether re-extracting a model after it has been changed a little bit, whether you can do this in a much easier way uh. rather than having to restart the whole attack from scratch. It's, it seems like intuitively this should be the case because you wouldn't expect new model to be extremely different from the previous one. But this is just on top of my head. I, I wouldn't sure. have any numbers to actually give here. But if you have a model that's continuously being updated and changed, extraction would give you one snapshot of it. Whether that's enough for what you as a as a user or as a as an adversary, let's say, need from the model is well, that really depends on the particular application. We talked a little bit about, you know, logistic regression and decision trees. The paper also talks about neural networks and SVMs and how the approach can work there. And of course, there are a lot of more advanced topics we could get into, like hyperparameter tuning and stacking and ensembling and all these sorts of things that as you add more complexity, it seems the task becomes more and more difficult to reverse engineer, but perhaps still viable. Do you think, uh, and I know this is maybe a bit hypothetical, but is there any aspect of the standard recipe book of machine learning processes that might, for a computational reason or a complexity reason, be like a one-way function, not reversible? Or is it just a matter of having enough observations to execute the process? Since the act of extracting the model is fundamentally not too different from the learning process in the first place, just made easier by a number of factors, it seems like if you were capable of training a model in the first place, it should also be possible to extract it. Even as these models become more complex, as long as you're fine with targeting not necessarily 100% accuracy of your local model uh, compared to the target model, but uh, something a little lower, we know that there's that these techniques will still work even for very complex uh, convolutional networks and so on. And uh, there it becomes more a matter of the actual application we're dealing with, whether an extraction of this type of accuracy is is useful or not. It's still unclear in which adversarial settings you'd need to go for really some perfect cross-accuracy, or if you're trying to do spam evasion or something, maybe you'd be okay with something much more crude. Yeah, that will depend on the actual adversarial setting you're dealing with. So what's next in your research? Is this an ongoing area of inquiry, or, or are you off in new areas? So right now I'm actually continuing uh, work in the setting of machine learning security, but on this different problem related to model evasion that I've alluded to a bit previously, which is essentially the problem that some researchers at Google have found out a couple of years ago, that is that the type of machine learning models that 
people use nowadays, so really state-of-the-art convolutional neural networks, for instance, that people would use for image classification, are actually extremely easy to fool. Mm -hmm. What you do there is that you'd start, for instance, with an image of a dog that's classified correctly as a dog, and then change a few pixels in a very clever way, such that suddenly the model would tell you that it's 99% confident that it's now looking at an airplane, Although to a human being, uh, the two images look basically indistinguishable. We start to have a bit of a better understanding now as to why this occurs. Although we don't necessarily have yet very strong methods to prevent it. And it's a very concerning problem from a security point of view as well, because of course, if you're going to use machine learning in security critical applications, be it for spam, be it in a self-driving car and so on, you don't necessarily want someone to be able to show up with examples that to a human being look completely malicious, let's say, yet your machine learning model would just classify them completely the wrong way. And so this is this is something that we've started looking into a bit as to how one might come up with machine learning models that are more robust to this type of problem. Yeah, the fooling images papers are really fascinating. I think good compliments to your work as well. So I'm excited to see what comes of that from anything else you put out in the future. Well, Florian, I really enjoyed this paper. I think it's something that everyone touching on ML should read and and be aware of. So I'll have a link in the show notes for anyone who wants to check it out. I'm happy to also talk more about our, our work to anyone who's interested. My email address should be rather easy to find online, if that's the case. Sure, and I'll have a link to your website in the show notes, so that should probably lead people there as well. Great. Well, thanks so much for your time, Florian, and for coming on the show. Thanks to you, Kyle. For more on this episode, visit dataskeptic.com. If you enjoyed the show, please give us a review on iTunes or Stitcher. 